This week, we continue our sermon series, Spirituality for the Real World, which is based on the book of James. You might think of this book as an advice column, a collection of sayings about how we can live wisely. And so, as I read from James chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, listen for how the Spirit might be speaking to us. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves, for in, if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing." If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. May God bless this reading to our hearing. It all started with a dance marathon. I met my friend Holly when we were both in sixth grade and attending summer camp, church camp. We went to different churches, but we often saw one another at youth events for the greater Fort Worth area of children in the youth group. And then when Holly and I were in high school, the two of us decided that we would host an all-night dance marathon. We were passionate about it. The two of us had been inspired at the Summer Youth Conference by a guest speaker that had come by the name of Mr. Fuller. We had never heard of Mr. Fuller before, but he inspired us. He had been a successful businessman in Atlanta, but had sold his business, gone to Africa, and tried to help people who did not have adequate housing. Then he came back to the United States and tried to replicate the improved housing model that he had started in Africa. His idea was to get a group of Christians together, people from the churches, to help those who were living in dire poverty, maybe folks who were homeless, maybe families who were couch surfing, maybe families who lived in an expensive but substandard apartment that didn't really hold their family. He would get volunteers from the churches to physically donate their time and labor to build the house. And then the family that had been chosen to live in the house would invest their own sweat equity. And after they moved into the home, they would begin making monthly mortgage payments for about 20 years until finally they themselves were homeowners. Well, Holly and I were just flabbergasted by this man's idea 
by his passion, by his energy, we were so inspired that we decided we could help him replicate this concept from Africa to Atlanta, all across the United States, by having an all-night dance marathon to raise money. Today, that organization, Habitat for Humanity, is a household name. We all have heard of Habitat for Humanity. Many of us have participated in those projects, and many other not-for-profits nationally and globally have tried to replicate its success or even improve upon its model. But what I learned as a 17-year-old kid at that all-night dance marathon was that Christianity was more than a set of ideas. It was doing real stuff to make a real difference in real people's lives. I don't quite remember how much money we raised, but the marathon was a huge success. Lots of kids came from all across the Metroplex. They danced all night and we raised lots of money. Well, fast forward, Holly and I have now both finished graduate school. She moved to Kansas City the year before I did and started working at a church on the plaza. I moved here the following year and started working here at Country Club Christian. Now you know that in any chosen field of work, there are days when your job just seems ludicrous. Something terrible happens and you think, why am I doing this work? And on those days, Holly would call me and say, it all started with the all-night dance marathon. We never should have done that dance marathon. If we hadn't done the marathon, we never would have gone into the ministry. But the truth is that the dance marathon is not only why I am a minister. It is also why I am a Christian. Because way back then, I learned the deep joy that comes from the brand of religion that cares for the orphans and the widows, that it empowers the poor, that lifts up the lowly, that comforts the afflicted, that changes lives and sets all of us on a path of walking in God's holy ways. I suppose I also learned that brand of Christianity from my dad. My dad was what the book of James would call a doer of the word, not just a hearer. I honestly don't ever remember my dad signing up for a Bible study class or reading a book of theology. Oh, oh yeah, he, he went to church, he heard the word every week, still does. And one time he was asked to serve on the church board and he fulfilled his term, but he said, I will never do that again. I didn't like that, but he loved ushering every single Sunday, even when it wasn't his turn to serve. And Dad was a faithful part of the Handbell Choir Parents group. Those parents hauled the heavy bell tables and the crates full of bronze handbells all over the city. Every year, they cooked hundreds of servings of spaghetti for the annual Handbell Choir fundraiser. And Dad loved it. He was and is a doer. And in Dad's personal life, his ethics revealed his principle of honesty and integrity and dignity for all people regardless of their rank or station in life. You see, as a young man, my dad started a business 
hauling hay. He put himself through college on the money he earned hauling hay in the summers all across Texas. And Dad had a man who helped him in his business who was African-American. When Dad and his co-worker would arrive in a small Texas town with their hay, but it was too late to unload the hay at the farm, they would have to figure out somehow to while their time away while keeping the hay safe. And so Dad would find the nearest drive-in movie theater so that the two of them could unwind for the evening. He would pull up the truck to the gate where it was time to pay for the movie theater, and he would tell his African-American co-worker, put your hat down a little lower, slump down in the seat a bit, because in those days, it was not allowed for his co-worker to enter the drive-in movie. And my dad never wanted to get into trouble because his dad was a Texas sheriff. But dad knew that there was something more important than what was legal, what was appropriate by the culture. There was always that greater good of doing the right thing. Dad embodied for me that Christianity is how you live your life, not what you think about God. The book of James is full of admonitions about how you and I should live our lives. There are a hundred imperatives. Do it like this. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. James's advice is practical wisdom about how the faith looks in real life every day. James, you see, James knows that there are some versions of religion that are worthless. For James, if religion is pure, it does two things. One, it cares for the vulnerable in society, people like the widows and the orphans. And it includes personal morality, how we conduct ourselves personally with ethics and honor and integrity. James, you see, believes that you should be able to look at how a person lives and know if he or she is a Christian without ever asking them what their beliefs about Jesus are. You and I live in a time when many of our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends think religion is worthless. Religion is not even a popular word anymore. Oh, oh yeah, it's cool to be spiritual, but religious is sometimes even used as an insult. You know, he's so holier than thou, so religious. Today's sociologists tell us that each year, church attendance is going down, and the younger generations are increasingly in a category called unaffiliated. Why? Why is that? When we were in Rome a couple of weeks ago, my husband and I and some others on the trip visited a place called the Pantheon. It is built on the ruins of a pagan temple, and years later, a Christian church was built on top of that pagan worship space. It's, it's basically one massive dome with an oculus in the roof. Today, it is a, a focal point of the Roman Catholic Church, famous Artists like Raphael and kings and popes are buried in this beautiful and ornate dome. 
But what caught my attention as we toured the Pantheon, even more than the beautiful marble floors and the beautiful artwork, were these simple banners, kind of the size of a human body, these, these panels showing images of modern-day, current residents of Rome. They were people who had come from El Salvador and Yemen and Nigeria. They were refugees who had fled persecution and torture and war and starvation. And alongside each photograph of this person was his or her story. They had been part of human trafficking. They had been victims of war and persecution. And here they were, and the, the church described them in that exhibit as the acrobats of life. They were there to challenge us, whether we were tourists or whether we were spiritual pilgrims in that place, to reimagine citizenship in God's world. And I realized as I toured this place, this is not a museum. This is God's holy church because they are doing God's word. But how do we keep up the courage and the stamina to be doers of God's word and not just those who hear and forget? How do we become the kind of Christians who embody pure religion and not that worthless kind of religion? A couple of weeks ago, here in the pulpit, I told a story about John Wooden. John was a longtime member of our denomination, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and he was also a very famous basketball coach who coached at UCLA. This week, a member of our church stopped by to tell me that John Wooden was a friend of his, and he shared me, with me some personal stories that he knew about John. Todd is the neighbor who stopped by to tell me these stories, and Todd said that one time he was interviewing John Wooden, and he asked him, he said, John, you have had the most incredible basketball career. You won 10 national championships in all those amazing basketball games. You must have had some really great highs, some exhilarating experiences. You coached some amazing players. You went to some great places. John, can you tell me if there's a one moment looking back on your life that stands out as the most exhilarating? And John Wooden said, yes, I can. It was the moment. 47 years ago, when she said yes. Personal morality and integrity. John was a doer of the word. He was not about fame and glory. He was about love. And he loved his wife. How do we become the kind of person whose religion is really worth something? In the book of James, we are given lots of advice but how do we put all that advice into real-life spirituality? In today's passage, we read this phrase, Welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. Welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. You see, the main character in the book of James, the main actor, it is not you. It is not me. It is God. 
God is the one who has implanted the word into us. God is the one who has the power to save our souls. God is gifting us with the light of God's presence. God is producing a good fruit in us. We welcome with meekness the goodness of God, the implanted word, and we try humbly to live in ways that reveals God's goodness unfolding here on this earth. During World War II in London, there was a Methodist church that had 3,000 seats in its sanctuary, and those seats were packed every Sunday in the morning and again on Sunday night. When the bombs began to fall in London, the people of that congregation realized that so many people were out on the streets and didn't have an adequate place to go during the air raids. And so they decided they would open up the church's basement beneath that 3,000-seat sanctuary so that anyone, whether they were drunk or homeless or just didn't have a storm shelter to go to, could come in and take refuge there underneath the church. The pastor and his wife and his children moved into the church to help serve, and they realized that when they got everybody in for the night, there wasn't enough room for them, and so they slept on the ground floor, which was not safe, in the men's washroom. At the end of the war, they realized that they had sheltered 450,000 people. And someone said that this was a church who put service ahead of the services. But truly, they continued to have worship all throughout the war. They continued to have worship services while they served. Now, when folks leave church today and any Sunday, they go to brunch, right? And on the way, someone says, what'd you think of that sermon? And someone says, well, I was kind of bored. And somebody else says, that one part made me pretty uncomfortable. And somebody else says, I liked the joke. That was kind of entertaining. But the true mark of a sermon is not if we liked the sermon. The true mark of a sermon is what we do with our lives on Monday. Pure religion happens when God's love flows through us. Well, I continue to be, be a fan of Millard Fuller after he started Habitat for Humanity, and I, I read his autobiography, and he told about coming back to Georgia and building a home for a lady who was in dire poverty. And when the house was built, he went down, he crossed the creek, and he went up to her house, and he said, how are things? I mean, does the water work? Is the, are, this, you know, are the nails all cleared away? Is everything okay? And she said, yeah, everything's great. And he said, no, really, like, is everything okay? Do you like the house? And she said, oh, Mr. Fuller, living in this house, it's like I was dead and buried and got dug up. The story of the resurrection the story of God's life, it must unfold in our own. And so just imagine, if someone was watching you this week, if someone was watching me, if someone was watching our church, if they were seeing how we parent and how we interact with our spouse and how we treat our enemies and how we conduct our business, if they were just seeing us and all they knew about Christianity 
was what they were seeing in us, would they think that our religion was worth something? 